Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so one of the things I was talking about as we ended last time is I was saying that one of the things that we could, let's go back a slide, um, if you were looking at matching to sample, where straight up matching to sample is very simple task. We've got a red key, let's say, and then the animal, after a retention interval of, say, five seconds, gets a choice between a red key and a green key. The animal's job is to peck red, and it gets food. If it pecks green, it gets an inner trial interval, and then another trial. Of course, half the time the sample's red, half the time the sample's green, half the time the right answer's on the right side, half the time the right answer's on the left side. Fair enough. This is subject to proactive and retroactive interference, as I said. The question one can ask, though, is, and the, remember the working memory, the reference memory part of this could be matched to sample, or it could be if red, peck red, if green, peck green. But the working memory part could be peck red, peck red, or peck green, peck green. Or it might have been, I saw red, I saw red, I saw red, or I saw green, I saw green, I saw green. Now, how in the hell are you going to get at that? We saw how Macintosh, Wilson, and Bokes got at the, what the reference memory part was. The question is, how do we get at what the working memory part is? Well, this was something that was solved by Herb Reutblatt in 1980 in his PhD thesis. Uh, I think Herb did his PhD with Donald Riley, who trained a lot of people. Don't see much of Herb Reutblatt anymore. Uh, everybody else comes to this conference in uh, Florida. He lives in Hawaii. <laughs> so it's a step down for him to come to Florida. Uh, he does come now and then and always shows us pictures in his talks and he works with dolphins. And it's all very interesting. And we all hate him. Um, so he's using what's called symbolic matching. I talked a bit about this. So we could have a, a, you know, a triangle is red and a square is green. So what he's got, and I'll put up all three possibilities here. Okay. If you have a red sample, you being a pigeon in this case, red sample, the correct answer is a horizontal line. Okay? So, red, and then the animal gets a choice between red's horizontal line, yeah, and a vertical line. That's the right answer. You know, has to learn this relationship. They, they do. They, they're pretty good at this. The, it doesn't take them a whole lot longer than learning straight up matching the sample. It's not a hard task. If they have an orange sample, it's a vertical line. Is the correct answer. And a blue sample is an almost vertical line. So almost vertical, trying to think back to that paper, which I haven't read in a very long time. Like that. Okay. So that's the setup. The animal only always gets two choices. Okay? So it's sample color and then the two possible answers are lines. Anybody understand the experiment? It's pretty straightforward, right? The neat thing is looking at this. If they make choices where the choices are one and two, in other words, 
they start to make mistakes when the choices are, are one and two. That's this here, in fact, that I've drawn out. Because horizontal is red, right? I wish I had the right colored markers to do this, but I don't. And this is orange. If they're encoding retrospectively, in other words, looking back, it's a lot easier to confuse orange and red than it is to confuse vertical and horizontal, isn't it? Orange and red are close on the closer on the spectrum, are pretty close on the spectrum. They're beside each other. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. But vertical and horizontal are pretty easy to discriminate, aren't they? On the other hand, if They make mistakes when the choices are two and three. So let's go with an orange sample. Actually, let's make it a blue sample because writing O looks like I'm writing, making just a key. So it's a blue sample. And we have a vertical line and an almost vertical line. I think an almost vertical is blue, is it not? Blue is almost vertical. And this is orange. If they're making the mistake here, then they're encoding prospectively. So what you're looking at, not as their right answers, you're looking at when they make mistakes. And then there's the possibility, <clears throat> those are the two interesting conditions. And then there's, uh, what do we got? Orange a sample and vertical line and horizontal, sorry, blue sample, almost vertical and horizontal. That's an uninteresting condition almost a control of sorts, okay? The next thing is that gives a baseline for how many mistakes they normally make, okay? This is really freaking clever, by the way. This is really, really, really clever. Okay. Do you understand the experiment? Do you understand the possible uh, interpretations? Does this make some sense? You probably want to know what they do, right? <laughs> um, I lost the connection here. That doesn't really matter. Right here? No, it's okay. Good. Let's go back. Well, what they do is when the Richard then what Herb did, because this is a PhD thesis, you get six, seven experiments. What he did is he varied the retention interval. When it's a short retention interval, they encode retrospectively. And the longer the retention interval gets, the more likely the pigeon is to encode prospectively. They switch. They it's a dynamic process, remember. Skinner would never have thought this. This is exceedingly clever. Yes, please. What exactly is the difference between retrospective? Retrospective is looking back. It was red, it was red, it was red. Prospective is looking forward. Vertical line, vertical line, vertical line. Can you just Thick. say it one more time? Like, um, yeah. When, when it's, when it's a sh this short, at the beginning, when you have a short retention interval, 
they encode retrospectively. And when you think about it, that may be a little bit easier in some sense. But the longer it gets, it's almost the case you would think that the more likely it is you're going to forget what you saw before. So they switch over and encode prospectively. Peck vertical, peck vertical, peck vertical, peck vertical. It's very neat. This is really clever. Um, those of us that study animal cognition, one of the things that we always say is that we have to be extra clever because we can't really ask the animal a question that it can't tell us. Um, it's the same thing, and I think I've told you guys this before, people that work with infants. It's, it's exactly the same. An infant can't actually, or somebody who works with somebody who's nonverbal uh, at all. You cannot ask the question the way I would ask you. Right? So it's really quite cool. Other questions about this? It's just a neat experiment. Okay. I've talked before about the eight-arm radial maze. Beginning of the course. Um, indeed, talked about Suzuki at all. Right with the eight arms, radiating out from the center like the spokes of the wheel. And the animals are using the relationship of each arm, sorry, each, each cue to each other cue. No, they're not using each arm as a tag. It's a cognitive map. That's what they have. They have a map-like representation of the world. So how, then, are they... Let's get a little more into the encoding they're doing. And one of the things that Todd McHuda and Bill Roberts did was they looked at you know what chunking in memory, right? You know that it's easier to remember. You, you remember phone numbers like 949-2301. You don't remember 949-2301. It's grouping. It's, it's chunking. We put things together. You think about even the alphabet. L-M-N-O-P is almost one, one word, one, one item, right? Okay. When you were like five and got to elementary school and realized that there wasn't, L-M-N-O-P wasn't a thing, <laughs> What's LMNOP? Right? Okay. So how are you going to test if rats chunk? Well, what Bill Roberts, who is one of the guys that I've talked about Bill before, he's, he's one of the guys that really started the whole study of animal cognition. He, he worked with Bitterman for his PhD. He got a job. He was an assistant, assistant professor. Then he quit and did a postdoc with Emil Colvin. It's a different time. And there were lots of academic jobs. No one would do such a thing. Because he wanted to know about cognition. And he told me that Endel looked at him one day and said, why are you ordering rats? And he was looking at human memory things in rats. It was actually quite cool. He was starting, starting to study animal cognition. So what they looked at, they used a 12-arm radial maze, not an 8-arm. Bill's big into that. He was doing, he had one paper with a 17-arm maze. I don't know why he does some of the things he does. But pretty cool. We have three arms, we, we have four possible things at the end of each arm. One, one thing was uh, Count Chocula. I think it was Count Chocula. It might have been chocolate chips. It's one or the other. I can't remember. It's probably chocolate chips. It was chocolate chips. I used to use Count Chocula, I used Count Chocula in my honors thesis experiment, and I just ate them up. <laughs> I ate the marshmallows. Because we couldn't get them. We didn't want to get them that. So they had chocolate, I think it's chocolate chips, little hunks of cheese. They're rats. Then, 45 milligram noise pellets. Those are no fun. 
with their food, and then, or nothing. So there are three arms that have chocolate, three arms have cheese, three arms have regular food pellets, and three arms are empty. Okay. Two groups, one group, the same three arms for, are, are chocolate each day, the same three arms are cheese, the same three arms are pellets, the same three arms are empty. The other group, it just varied each day. So the first thing is, to give you the idea that they might be chunking something, is that the group where it doesn't move around does better. They, they learn more quickly. So it's easy, so the, the interpretation, the interpretation is that what they're doing is they're going, okay, chocolate arms. And this is the order everybody went in, by the way. All rats, they have chocolate, cheese, pellets, and then I don't want to play anymore. Three empty arms, I know there's nothing here. Remember I told you the same thing happened with my chickadees and my juncos. It'd be like, I'm not going to that extra feeder. There's nothing in it. So they had like the five-minute rule. And I remember Todd telling this, Todd McKinnis' master, master's thesis. Um, he sat, he would just sit there and watch them. For five minutes, they'd do nothing. They'd sit in the middle, and then he'd take them off. Because they know there's nothing there. So that's pretty indicative that they, first of all, know the content of, the, of, the, of each arm. Also, Considering they're doing them in order, it makes, you look, it makes it look like they're chunking it somehow. But the fact that they learn more quickly. Now, what could we do to really test that they're chunking? Let's move, let's say, from the, now the heck with the control group. Now we'll do another experiment where same setup, except what we'll do is get them all trained up. They'll learn nice and quickly. And then we'll go, okay, we're going to exchange the cheese with the uh, pellets and the chocolate with the empty. The cool thing is, when you do that, they go down, let's say, a pellet arm. Okay? Sorry, they, well, they go down what they think is a chocolate arm, and it's a pellet arm. They then switch over to the pellets and get all the chocolate out of it. They figured out what the experimenters did. It's pretty cool. So they're not remembering them as, oh, let's go to chocolate. They're remembering them as, here's a, here's a bunch of arms, and these are the ones I like best. That's pretty freaking cool. <clears throat> you can actually, one of the neat things you can do in human experiments is you can tell people to forget something, and they'll forget it. Give them a list of words, and you say forget after one of some of the words. They don't remember those words as well as the ones you tell them to remember. And how do we test them? Now and then we throw in a, well, there's a couple of ways you can do it with recognition. You can do with recall. Uh, that's pretty easy, right? And, and, and they don't remember the ones you told them to forget. Yeah, go ahead. Did you say that when they went down with like, the cheese arm and they thought it was the pellets, they... The they'd eat the first pellet. They're not going to not eat it. Yeah. But then they'd switch over to where, where the swap happened. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, if I tell you to forget something, you'll forget it. Right? If I tell you to remember, you'll remember it there. And the reason it's chunking is because of the order. Yeah. And because they do them all yeah, yeah, together, too. Yes. Yeah, like 949, 2301. So if I tell you to forget something, you'll forget it. 
because you're not going to expend resources trying to remember it. Memory is an active process. We all know that. If I tell you I'm never going to test you on this, do you study it? No. You typically know. If I tell you I'm going to test you on this and don't, it doesn't do any harm, but it means you'll remember it. Keo still complains about me doing that to him when I taught him stats. To this day, he complains about it. <laughs> you told me to memorize the central limit theorem, and then you never tested me on it. I said, uh-huh, you know it, though, don't you? <laughs> so you can do this. How would you do this with a, with, a, with a pigeon? Well, you just use matching the sample. But in the middle, so you go red, choice of red and green. But in the middle, you can put in another key. After they get the red, you put in either a triangle, meaning... You're going to get this, red and green. Or if I give you red, then a, I don't know, let's go with a square. I'm just going to skip the trial. It's going to skip it. You're going to go to the next trial. You're going to get another trial. end. have been over here. You're going to get another trial. End. Why do we use, why, why do we use remember Q to forget Q? Because it, what if they, well, you know what we're going to do. After they've learned all this up, we're going to actually test them. Right? Of course. Why do we use a, uh, a remember queue and a forget queue? Because we don't want to. We don't want it to be because of interference somehow. And guess what? They suck at this, at these ones, because they were told not to remember them. They were told we're not going to test you. Most of that work, a lot of that work, was done by. Oh, how do you spell his name? I don't want to misspell somebody's name. Because you might want to know about this someday. And you're saying, how do you know? What are you looking it up? He's a Facebook friend. Um, where is he? Okay. P-E-T-E-R. Okay, there it is. U-R-C-U-R. <laughs> Peter Choli. Yeah. He's a very funny guy. So that was that's a lot of his I think that might that might have been his PhD work. He's probably like what? He's probably 15 years older than me. God, we're all getting old. Um, I just did the math. That makes him like 64. There's no way. I, I, I think of him being maybe 40, but he's not maybe 40. Because I'm maybe 50. Um so that's really cool. Peter's a good guy, just really great work. So that's pretty clever. You can tell. It, so again, it shows that animals don't just passively remember things. They do it actively just like you do. Now, of course, it looks way differently. They're not really as good at it sometimes as we are. In fact, usually as we are. But the, the basic rules are going to work the same. Right? Here's another one of my favorites. Alistair Inman and Sarah Shuttleworth, 1999. Okay, this is really neat. So again, standard, regular rule, matching the sample. So they're trained up on red, then red and green. Now this is kind of taking a little bit of a step from what Peter did. Once they've learned that, uh, I'm just going to call, it wasn't a T, 
but I can't remember what the signal was. T for test, N for no test. So if they, they choose T, they get a choice between red and green, and they get food. If they choose no test, they get food, but they get less food. It's what's called the safe key. One's the safe key, one's the test key. So when you think about this, this is kind of like, well, in some respects, it's like doing the definition questions on my tests. You skip some of them because you go, I don't know this as well as I know this one. I'm going to do that one. I know I can. I'm confident in my ability to do that one. What's that? What's that? That's called meta memory. That's metacognition, knowing what you know. Right? It's knowing what you know. Okay? All right. So how do we find out if they actually don't know when they take the no or the, or the, or the, the safe key? Well, sometimes we give them the test anyway. And guess what? They're not very good at it. So that's the first part of this. That's already pretty neat. That's already pretty neat. But what would we expect would happen if we make the, the interval, the retention interval between the sample and the test or no test key, what if we, when we increase that, what should we expect to find? We should expect to find more instances of picking the no test, the safe key, right? Because the longer the retention interval, the more, the more the animal has to remember something, the longer the retention interval, the harder it is to remember something, you just know that, just in your experience, that's what we should find. And that's exactly what they found. The longer the retention interval, the more, the longer it takes for the animal to remember something. Or sorry, that. The longer the retention interval, the more likely the animal is to, to, to know it didn't remember something. And again, how do you test them? Now and then you just throw in a probe and see if they don't remember it, and they don't. They're at chance when they, when they choose this. They're at 50%. Pigeons know what they know. That's also pretty neat. It's funny, when Alistair Inman, who was, uh, he was a postdoc with Sarah when I was one of her graduate students, I was pretty much near the end, and he came, I think, in the last year I was there. Uh, maybe the second last year I was there, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, Alistair's a biologist. Alistair uh, did his PhD with, I think, Alex Koselnik at um, Oxford, and then he came over to work with Sarah, and Sarah did a lot of behavioral ecology stuff. So he was thinking totally like a biologist. So this is actually a behavioral ecology problem about rate of return of, and patches and all kinds of stuff. And he presented it to the lab group, and we all went, you're studying metamemory in pigeons. And he went, I'm doing what with a who now? And we said, no, you think about this. It's metamemory. And he was like, well, I don't even know what that means. And we all explained it to him, and that's what it ended up being. It's called, the paper's called metamemory in the pigeon. It's very cool. It's a neat experiment. It's very clever. All right. Questions about that experiment? All right. Do you know about priming? Do you know about priming? So if I was to give you a list of words, and one of the words was, uh, so I'm going to give you a list of words and have you remember them, right? And one of the one of the words was coffee. 
you're much more likely to be able to remember. You, you, when I ask you, let's say it's a, a recall, a recognition experiment. So after that, I give you hyperattention interval, probably some kind of distractor task, you know, and then let's say five minutes, and then I give you a list of words. One of the words is coffee, and one of the words is uh, I don't know, door. Of course, you're going to pick that as being on the list, right? Sure. Now, and I tell you that. The other thing I can do is I can do something called priming of implicit memory. I can give you, so this is called explicit memory. Because I've told you, there are, here's some lists, here's some words. Which ones did you see? However, I could also do this. I can say, let's do some fill in the blanks. And I have you fill in that. Versus, well, we can use door again. Okay. You're much more likely to fill in coffee here than you are to fill in door. By the way, you can fill in door too. Because it's, it's the right answer. You know, it could also be beer. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Okay. This is a cool thing that happens because it shows memory. It's, it's persistent. This... This stuff doesn't decay. If I, this decays like crazy, right? So, one of the things that, for example, uh, oh, blah blah blah, Tolving Chakra and Stark, nineteen eighty-two, found is that when this with people, it's, what is it? It's uh, uh, one hour, one day, and seven days. So. After one hour, you're pretty good. After one day, you're not bad. After seven days, you're horrible at recognition or recall. Right? Of course. I give you a list of words seven days ago. Which one of these was on it? You're not going to be very good at that. The priming, this thing here, doesn't decay. By the way, also the priming shows up in people with like, you know, HM, the guy with the uh, no hippocampus. His is totally normal. He can't remember the list of words after five minutes. He has no clue or, two, or an hour or a day or whatever. But his priming is totally normal. So do you understand the idea of human priming? You may have seen this before. You will hear about it again if you take memory. Okay. So that's something that Paulby and his group and a lot of other people have gotten into. Okay. Now, when you think about it, this is something, it's pretty basic. It's a perceptual phenomenon. So this isn't higher order cognition. This is recognizing an object very quickly. This is filling in blanks. It's something that animals do all the time when they're looking for food. Especially animals that search for cryptic prey. Like a pigeon searching for food on the ground, and you got a whole bunch of uh, dirt and then some seeds. Hard to discriminate the dirt from the seeds. Well, for you and I, but the pigeons are pretty good at it. So why not test this in pigeons? That should actually say 2008. So, how in the hell am I going to test this in pigeons? 
I will say I think this is pretty clever. I think this is my coolest experiment I've ever done, and no one else does. And said it like seven times only. Which, so that sucks. <laughs> it really pisses me off, because I think it's awesome. Uh, I've done other stuff that's been cited a lot more times than seven, but I'm pretty proud of this, but no one else is. So anyway, that's why I'm going to tell you about it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay. Remember I talked about how, I've talked before, pigeons are very good at concepts. Right, cat. I used cats and cars. Why did I use cats and cars? Because it's easy to find books with. This was before when I did this work back, the original stuff in 1997. There was internet. I had. I've been using the internet since 1986, but there weren't. It wasn't full of cat pictures like it is now. However, Bill Roberts, whose lab I was working in, I was a postdoc in his lab. Bill Roberts' wife, obsessed with cats. You know, some people have a flag of a country of their country fly, flying in their house, she's got a cat flag. Mm-hmm. Whatever, she likes cats. That's her thing. So she had cat books. Card books are easy to find. My dad had a few. Uh, it was easy to go down to the university library and just find books that cars. So I had cats and cars. <clears throat> I then took them down to the... Uh, I don't know who it was at the university. I said, take pictures of as many of these cats and cars as you can and actually use slides. That's how old this tech was. By the time we did it in 2008, Craig Keynes and I, I gave him my digital camera. And I said, go take pictures of people and buildings. That was easy. He did it. It took him a day walking around, taking pictures. Stop people in the street and say, can I take your picture? It's for science. <laughs> okay. So, as long as there are no buildings in the picture, right? But cats and cars is what I used. So the first part of this experiment is, is just getting pigeons to peck at cats and cars. They learn that pretty easily. They get very good at it. Okay? And the way this is set up, the way this was set up in the 1997 experiment was there's three screens. Okay? In the box in front of the pigeon. Behind each of these, these are translucent plastic, and behind each of them is back projecting and an actual slide projector. And then I had to write computer code that ran the slide projectors. Now, when I did the stuff with Craig Keynes, yeah, we used PowerPoint. <laughs> and a touch screen. It's way easier. So the way this was set up, the box was about this size from above. And there's a slide projector here. And then one here. And then one there. Carousel slide projectors projecting directly onto here. And there's a feeder down here, okay? So that's the first part. Cats and cars on the left screen and the right screen. Now, and they learn that. That's just pre-training. The next, now we're going to get into the experiment. First, the animal would see what we call a warning stimulus, and we'll call it warning stimulus sub one. It was a picture that was neither a cat nor a car. That was even easier to find. Pictures of not cats or not cars pictures of anything else. They were mostly, I took a really nice 35mm camera, because again, digital cameras were around in the, in the 90s. Well, they were, but they were horrible. And I walked around the lab and took pictures of things in the lab. Pigeons? People? Equipment? A chalk brush? Anything I could find. In fact, and I had all other slides too. I had data slides from old talks. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. So they get a warning stimulus, then they get a choice. 
So they peck at this, FR20. They're going to peck at that 20 times. After the 20 times, then they get a choice. This goes blank. And then they get, let's say, an S plus one here and an S minus one here. Let's say S plus for this pigeon was cats. If they peck the S plus, they get food. It's five seconds access to grain. They peck the S minus, it all goes dark. Okay. So, so far, what's the warning stimulus doing? Absolutely nothing. It's like saying, pay attention now. This is when it gets interesting. So that's a trial. We call that trial one. Now in trial two, so no, yeah, forget it. First they learn this. Now what we're going to do is we're going to make it hard. The way we make it hard is I blocked out parts of these pictures. How did I do that? Did I take more pictures? No, I took construction paper and put it on the back of these two things. 50% of each picture is occluded, is blocked out. So what we have is now instead of the, so we got a cat. There's our cat. There's our cat picture. But what the pigeon now sees Let's see, 50% of it, so that's we're almost there. Is that. Now, so that now we've trained, now we do that. There's a lot of pre-training in this experiment. So now that's how this worked, okay? So now we're at that point. Now what we're gonna do is in the middle, the warning stimulus here is going to be S plus two. So now it's a cat, different cat from here, by the way. Totally different cat. And now we have a Okay. This is our trial two. Okay? Yes, that's right. That's two and that's three. These are different cats. Remember that this is completely seen. It's not blocked there. These are blocked up. These are what I call picture fragments. Not word fragments, picture fragments. You can't do pigeons with words. They can't read. Now this is where it gets good. Finally, trial three. There's morning stimulus two. So it's a different morning stimulus. I don't know. It's a picture of some graduate student. It isn't me. And then, let's put S minus three here. And... S plus three. Yes. There is 90 seconds between each trial. 90 seconds is long. I told you this already. 90 seconds is long for a pigeon. Remember, the Clark's nutcrackers were the ones that got it to 90 seconds of matching the sample? They are statistically significantly better at these trials than they are at these, at categorizing. They're recognizing the cat pictures more quickly here than they are here. Or the car, depending. We're going to say cat for this animal. So three, 90 seconds is exceedingly long 
for, for, pigeon, for pigeon memory like this. In fact, Craig Keynes, for his honors thesis in 2004 when he was working with me in Newfoundland, and we finally got it taken care of in 2008, um, pulled the retention interval out to two and a half minutes, and there's still no decay. So all it shows is they're just a little bit better at, 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 at memory, uh, sorry, at categorization, meaning they're, pri they're primed to recognize the stimulus. They're primed to recognize the stimulus. The bad thing about this experiment is, I've re Craig and I replicated it, and then uh, my friend Rob, one of his graduate students, was trying to do it with monkeys, and it didn't work. And we can't figure out why. We have no idea. It, it should have worked. Rob was like, well, this guy's... Every, every time I see Ben, I say the same thing. It's like, I'm sorry I wasted about a year and a half of your life. Because he was basing his PhD work on my work. With, and he was, it didn't work. Yeah, I was like, he's, I was like, no, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. He's a piece of postdoc now at NIMH. He's got a nice gig. It's like, oh, I always feel like, sorry, Ben. Really sorry, Ben. So... You might wonder, why did I do so? I was trained up to do all this stuff on the synthetic approach and looking at animals' special abilities. In fact, Sarah one day said to me, does anybody ever say to you, didn't you learn anything from Sarah Shuttleworth? She was saying this is a joke. I said, well, we should expect this priming to be something that is something that shows up in all animals. It's basically quickly recognizing objects. It's something that they do all the time in the wild. Most animals should be able to do this, right? In essence, this is sort of a, it's almost semantic memory. It's facts about the world. That's what this thing looks like, right? And I was pretty pleased. I mean, um, one of the people that I had do comments on the manuscript was Endel Talving, who's, you know, a big guy and all this stuff, and he, was, he, he thought it was a good idea. It was pretty cool. So I figured if Endel said it was okay, it's okay. So, so I mean... People studying animal cognition are doing all kinds of neat stuff using these same techniques, right? Like I said, FR20. You just, yeah, we know all that stuff, but now very few people are doing this, and I didn't even talk about the timing work. The timing stuff's very complicated, and I don't want to scare you. It's, it's really hard. Timing is hard. Uh, yeah, I'm not even going to talk about it. Um, I talked a little bit about it, and that's all I'm going to tell you. It involves mathematical modeling, and it's really... Even when you do the work, you sort of only half understand it. Well, at least that was my experience. It's fun writing a paper with Ken Chang, but still. So, a lot of us are studying all kinds of different things in different species. People are now taking... Look, taking a look at what the animals should be able to do based on their ecology. But they're also saying there should be generalities. Sure. Right? Directive forgetting should work. Uh, pigeons should be able to recognize what they have in their own memory, meta memory. There should be priming. Why wouldn't there be chunking? That's a, those are general phenomena that should show up in all kinds of animals. But then there are special things like looking at memory in storing birds, looking at memory in uh, birds that look at uh, uh, 
that are, that are, that are uh, nectar feeding birds should be a little bit different because they should never go back to a patch where they've, they've emptied it because nectar doesn't replenish right away, but the next day they should go back because nectar replenishes. And that's the kind of work that Darren Burke and Danny Selikowski have been doing for a few years. And it's great stuff. Right? Questions about this stuff? podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.